I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Livewire Radio. We're backstage at Revolution Hall here in Portland. We've got an amazing show coming up for you. We've got Mary Pallon from the New York Times writing about Monopoly. We've got Lucky Peterson playing some music. And we've got this guy, Daniel Handler. His new book is We Are Pirates. Hello. We're talking about gaming the system this hour. And I'm just wondering, what do you think is the best thing you've ever gotten away with? <laughs> Writing fiction for a living. I think that's the best thing I've ever gotten away with. And eating a donut during this interview? It was just a very special donut that was decorated with pirates in honor of my new novel, We Are Pirates. It's a wonderful book. I also think it should have printed in large print, Don't Read It to Your Kids, because a lot of people identify you with uh, some of the children's work that you've done. Has there been confusion for anyone? Not that I'm aware of. I think I've made enough children miserable with the books specifically designed for them that I don't have to worry that the book not design for them will also make them unhappy. All right, save that. That is Radio Gold. Let's use it when we head out on the stage. I can't wait. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with Lemony Snicket creator Daniel Handler, Monopolis author Mary Pallon, Music from jazz and R&B great Lucky Peterson and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire. His high score on Galaga is still number one at the Texaco on Greenway Way in Seattle. Luke Burbank! All right, thank you very much. Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thanks, everybody, for coming out to Revolution Hall here in Portland. Uh, this hour... We're theming our show, Gaming the System. We're going to talk to somebody who literally wrote the book on Monopoly and the interesting history of the Monopoly game. And so we thought we would try to put these ideas into action. So Jason Rouse, yeah. what exactly are we doing here with the table at the back of the stage? Um, we are going to play Monopoly tonight. Um, a live, no holds barred. 100% by the rules game of Monopoly. It's going to be myself. It's going to be Sean McGrath. Okay. It's going to be Andrew Harris. And child, uh, this is Una. Um, we how rented her for the evening. How old is... How old are you, Una? Nine. Can you say that a little, a little bit louder? Nine. <laughs> Good. Now that's too loud. Don't get carried away. Una, we talked about this. Okay, Una, you are nine years old. You're going to be playing 
Monopoly against the Livewire writing staff. Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever played Monopoly before? Yeah, lots of times. How do you usually do? Um, just the classic way, like the way we're going to do right now. Okay, do you usually win? Uh, it's like 50 50. Like okay. Okay, those odds are too good. Yeah. She's <laughs> already in a dominant position. Okay. Have you ever played Monopoly uh, on a live radio show before? No. Oh, really? I guess you don't get around much. <laughs> All right. Una, thank you very much. Please, if you can, return to the table to lay waste to these adults. Jason, you're going to be kind of our, what, our play-by-play -play announcer of this yeah, game? Yeah, our li liaison to the game. Who's, okay. who's doing what? Who's cheating? Who's being caught cheating? Is, is there How, anything on the line? I mean, just, what, what is well, the Well, none of us want to lose to a nine-year-old child, so okay. there's a lot on yeah, the line, actually. Out. All right, thank All you, right, Jason Rouse. We'll be checking back with you and our Monopoly game players throughout the show. All right, as I mentioned, uh, this hour we're talking about gaming the system, and there might not be anyone on the planet who's done a better job of that than David Phillips. David is an engineer from San Diego who loves to read fine print. One day, back in 1999, the fine print said that he could basically rack up unlimited airline miles by buying packages of discounted Healthy Choice pudding, which he did to the tune of $3,000, which earned him over a million frequent flyer miles, and he and his family have not paid for an airline ticket since. Please welcome by phone David Phillips to Livewire. Hi, David. Um, how did you find out about this promotion? You know, it was, a, it was a, the rare time when I was doing the grocery shopping, and I saw an airline uh, logo on one of these frozen dinners, and I did the math, and I realized, you know, this is a pretty good deal. So I figured we, maybe we'll get a free ticket or two out of it, and then I just kind of started scouring grocery stores looking for the, the cheapest thing I could find. And then one day, the golden opportunity arrived when I came into a grocery store and I saw individually wrapped cups of chocolate pudding for sale for 25 cents a piece. So with each 25-cent carton of pudding, how many airline miles were you getting? It was 100 frequent flyer miles. Per 25 so, cents? Yeah. So it's just an insane deal. So I, I, I basically filled up the grocery carts and then took a track with my minivan, filling up the entire minivan full of chocolate cups of pudding. So, so you're going to every grocery store to buy this discounted pudding. What are you telling them the pudding is for? <laughs> you know, I was a little nervous that someone else was going to get onto my deal, so I, I played up the crazy act. So this, is, this was 1999, so when, whenever anybody had enough courage to ask me, I'd just kind of mumble and say, Y2K. You know, that's not the worst plan that I heard related to Y2K. Um, <laughs> right. Well, how many miles did you rack up with this thing? So I ended up with about a million and a quarter frequent flyer miles, so it was enough for 30 round trips to Europe. And did the airline or the pudding company at some point say, nah, dude, this isn't what we were trying to do? They, they were pretty good sports about it. I, I had it very well documented. So there was a moment where they, uh, I thought they weren't going to honor the deal. But when I uh, phoned them up and told them I had photos of all this stuff and documentation to, to prove that I actually mailed it into them, then 
they kind of unceremoniously sent me off the certificates. And one day I came home, and there's a million and a quarter certificates worth of frequent flyer miles on my porch. Wait, there. So there are how many certificates? Is that a million certificates or one certificate that's worth a million? I, I, no, I think they were like a hundred miles each. So there was just this huge stack of certificates, and I had to individually like fill in my frequent flyer mile number on it and mail them back in in order to get the credit. And that's where they tried to get you a little bit too, right? Like you had to rip the labels off the pudding, but you basically, what, you recruited the Salvation Army to do it in exchange for the pudding? Yeah, I had a little problem because it, it did take a fair amount of work. You had to mail in the barcode. And so I've got a couple problems. One, I have to ma- rip off all these barcodes. And two, what am I going to do with 12,000 cups of pudding? So I found, uh, I found somebody who had a good sense of humor at a local Salvation Army, and they agreed to, um, to take the pudding as a donation and peel off the barcodes and send them back to me. So uh, it, it worked out great. And then, and then I decided since I actually donated the pudding, I'd write the whole thing off as a tax donation. My friend, I believe that is what we mean when we say gaming the system. Um, now, I, I understand. What do you call these things, by the way, David? Do you call these your projects, your deals, your scams? How do you refer to these within your family? It, it, I guess it's mainly just a hobby, but it, it's definitely, they, they vary. Some are more scam and some are just kind of good deals. Well, I understand that you actually came up here to Portland for an attempted hobbyist experience. How did that go? Yeah, my, my first trip to, to Portland was uh, a few years back. Uh, one of the rental car companies had a deal where if you rented a, an SUV, they would give you 7,500 frequent flyer miles for the rental. And I scoured the country and found some certificates, and for some reason the Portland airport had SUVs going for 17 bucks a night. That basically means for every three rentals, you have enough for a free round-trip ticket anywhere in the United States. So I, I made 35 reservations for, for rental cars, went up to, to Portland, and then I go to the rental counter and I say, hey, I know this is a little weird, but I've rented 35 cars tonight, and um, I really don't need 35 cars. I only need one. And believe it or not, the guy was, like, pretty, pretty okay with it. He said, you know, there's someone else who did something like that. We'll just put the same car repeatedly, and um, I was out of there in 10 minutes. So that was like a quarter, a quarter million frequent flyer miles off that first deal. Just the fact that you were able to pay them in pudding is amazing to me. <laughs> there was no pudding involved with that one. But I, I went back to the hotel. This is where I got a little greedy. I said, hey, it works so easy. I'm going to put in like 100 rentals for the next day. So I come in. I turn in I'm going to turn in the car. You know how they have the little remote thing where they're printing up the receipt. And the guy pricks up the receipt and he says, oh, um, it says, see the manager. <laughs> so I go in and see the manager and he says, hey, guy, um, we, we got a call from New Jersey and they said, what are you doing? We're, we're losing 60 bucks per rental for this guy. And he says, we'll, we'll, give you the, we'll give you your quarter million frequent flyer miles for the 35, but that's it. So that was the end of your hobby for that day. That was it. That was it for Portland. Well, good try, David, and congratulations on uh, figuring out the angles on this. That is very frequent flyer David Phillips right here on Livewire Radio. Thank you. Livewire, we are the show that's three weeks into a new Scrolls of Belfalgor 11, the Elder Cleric's Shadow Temple. And not to brag... 
but we're basically dominating Timmy Donnell, who is a ninth grader from Beaverton. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, who offer up this tip on goal setting. Make them small, realistic, and achievable, and you might actually reach them. So don't say, I want to be just like Gandhi. Say, I want to be less of a jerk to my cat. Or, or don't say, this year I'm running a marathon. Just say, this year I'm going to sit less. Doesn't that feel freaking doable? That's because it is. With Ergo Depot sit-stand desks and active sitting solutions, you'll hit your goal in a single day. And then you'll be a better person, just like Gandhi. Visit ErgoDepot.com to start your transformation. All right, welcome back to Live Wire Radio. Our theme this hour, Gaming the System. Mary Pallon is a journalist who's written largely about finance and sports for little small-town papers like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Her first book, The Monopolist, tells the greed and scandal you never knew existed behind the creation of the beloved board game Monopoly. Here to explain, among other things, why anyone would choose to be that stupid iron when you've also got battleship and race car as options, please welcome Mary Pallon to LiveWire. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with Lizzie, is it McGee? Yes. Lizzie McGee, what was her role in the early, early days of what we now think of as Monopoly? So for years, the story was that Monopoly was invented by a man during the Great Depression, during um, America's Darkest Hour. He's unemployed, and he goes into his basement and creates Monopoly. But the problem with that story is it's not exactly true. And Lizzie McGee actually made her landlord's game in 1904. So Now, when you say her landlord's game, that's what she called it. It wasn't for her landlord, a guy named Randy. <laughs> no, no, the property ironies weren't that rich yet. So she makes this game, and it goes viral, but like turn-of-the-century style among like a who's who of left-wing America. And very quickly, people start calling it the Monopoly game, even though it's a teaching tool. It's a political tool to teach about the evils of monopolists. So the point of Monopoly when Lizzie McGee came up with it, was to not have a monopoly? So she had two rule sets. She had a monopoly rule set and an anti-monopoly rule set. And the monopoly rule set that we all know and love today is the one that takes off. And you can read into human nature whatever you want on that. (laughs) Uh, What about the Parker brothers? How do they get involved in this? So it's a version of this game that had been spread that Charles Darrow had played, and he sells to Parker brothers. And then they realize they have a problem, which is that this game had a whole history for 30 years before Darrow gave them this game. And Darrow, we should just mention, he's the guy you talked about who is was commonly thought of as this guy who was broke and trying to take right, care of his family. Right, this Horatio Alger, feel-good like, board. And he went into the right. basement crying and he like invents Monopoly <laughs> and saves his family, right? That was the story. Right, right. And so so, he gives it to Parker Brothers or sells it to Parker Brothers. And they have to go about acquiring these other games, which includes Lizzie McGee, who by now in the mid-1930s is an elderly woman living in Washington, D.C., and they acquire her game for $500 with no royalties. And that, as far as we know, is as much as she made off of Monopoly. Do you know how much Parker Brothers has made off of Monopoly? A lot. And it's not Monopoly money. It's like real money. Like a lot, (laughs) a lot, a lot. (laughs) They get actual money for the game. Right. Right. Um, what was Lizzie McGee's reaction 
when she realized that this game, the landlord's game, which she as this, what was the, uh, it was the, the, what was the tax system that she was obsessed with? Sure. So the single tax system is this idea, and I won't geek out too hard on this, but basically this idea that you should tax land and only land. And so she makes this game as a teaching tool to teach people how it works. So she makes this game for that purpose. Did she realize in her lifetime that everybody was just like, sweet, I'll get a monopoly <laughs> on Boardwalk? And did that break her heart that it had the total opposite effect? We don't know. I mean, it's so hard to say because if Lizzie McGee's goal was to have people playing the game, well, you know, she obviously succeeded. But the fact that it is literally associated with its opposite today, you could argue that the political teachings, I mean, I don't think anybody here or listening thinks, oh, monopoly, the Henry George single taxing tool. I mean, I've, I've never heard that. <laughs> These people think of it that way. <laughs> But they're very dour and very progressive. <laughs> this is Livewire Radio, and we're talking to Mary Pallon about the game of Monopoly. Her new book is The Monopolist. What was the anti-Monopoly game? There was actually a guy who's very prominent in your book right. and really a family that we're obsessed with, what, <laughs> creating a, a, a spin-off, not a spin-off version, but their own kind of like sworn enemy to Monopoly. Right. So in the 1970s, there's this man named Ralph Onspock, and he events this game called Anti-Monopoly. And he's very concerned with kind of railing against the OPEC oil cartels and things that, you know, it was very, it was clearly an era of high cynicism. And it's not long before he hears from Parker Brothers attorneys who say, you know, you can't make Anti-Monopoly. And that kicks off this insane legal battle that goes on for like 10 years and unearths the whole story of Lizzie McGee and the original players and all of that. So, um... Are you a Monopoly player? Yes. Are you good at it? I'm good, but it's embarrassing because you would think somebody who's written a book about Monopoly, I'd be like unbeatable. And I'm, I'm good, but I'm not like, I'm, 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 I, I've been beaten before. Oh. Chiefly by my older brother. But So I don't know if that counts. Was that part <laughs> of like where your interest started in this? I came across the story by accident. I was reporting about Wall Street and I thought I was going to have a throwaway line about Monopoly. And I actually grew up playing a lot of board games because I grew up on the mean streets of Eugene, Oregon. And I heard the Darrow story, like everybody. I just heard that the game was invented during the Great Depression. So here I am in 2009. I'm at the Wall Street Journal. Things were really depressing then. Um, anybody who remembers reading the paper then or just living. Um, <laughs> and or covering themselves with the paper <laughs> while they slept on a park bench. <laughs> Whatever you were doing back in those days. Yeah, exactly. And I thought, oh, I'll just, you know, put a throwaway line about, you know, Monopoly being invented during the Great Depression. I looked and I looked and I couldn't find the story and I was so frustrated because I thought here we are writing about derivatives and investment banks and things collapsing and I can't find out the truth about a board game. And so I reached out to Ralph Onspach, this economist who had this game, and I thought, well, maybe if this guy was you know, involved in a legal battle, he would know something. And he got back to me right away, and he was like, oh, I know all about the history of Monopoly, and just started talking and talking and talking. And then five years later, it became a book. What, what do you think it says about our culture that this game is so popular? And also, what do you attribute the popularity to? There are a lot of board games. Um, I think that the reason Monopoly has stuck around is I think all board games have an element of like role-playing and fantasy. And so we get to do things we don't get to do in real life. Unless what would like... it be like to be a Scotty dog? <laughs> <laughs> things got really existential really quickly. <laughs> a Scotty dog slash hotel owner. <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, unless you're Donald Trump with a dog thing, you know, that's like not your, your normal life. So I think that's part of why it appealed to people then and still does today. Or those guys over there, I don't even know how they're doing, but oh, we're gonna they check look really in. engaged. For those people just joining us, uh, we've had a heated game of Monopoly happening at the backstage involving our show writers and a nine-year-old girl named Una. So we're going to find <laughs> out in a few minutes how they're all, um, how they're all holding up. 
I don't know if you know the answer to this question. We're talking to Mary Pallon. Her uh, new book is The Monopolist. I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but uh, are board games in general on the wane because of smartphones and uh, computer stuff? You know, it's hard to say. When um, I started reporting on this a few years ago, I would have said yes. But now there's like this really strange geek renaissance happening because of things like Kickstarter. If you're a game designer, you can actually get your board game made in a way that you probably couldn't have. And I'm starting to hear a lot from people, especially in tech, who are like playing, like look at Settlers of Catan, which is this really fantastic game. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Some sheep and ore fans in the house. All right. I like it. I, I don't know. I, I think that it, people are still playing games and I'm hearing from people about it. And I think it's kind of strange and weird and cool and great. So you think that uh, Monopoly is compelling enough and there's enough maybe, you know, parents grew up playing it. There's a lot of nostalgia around. You think right. that it will be able to continue to be successful even though uh, it's not a computer game and it basically stands for the opposite of what the person who founded it <laughs> wanted to be about? Hey. Uh, I, I do think so. And also keep in mind Monopoly lives on digitally too. I mean, there are iPhone versions of the game. And, and it's also a weird game because... Most people don't read the rules. It's something That's what you I learn. wanted to ask you about. Right. Like, are, we were talking this week with the producers about some rule about how any property that somebody doesn't want to buy is supposed to go up for auction immediately. Like, yes. how are we playing Monopoly wrong? Oh, man. This is everybody's life is going to change right here, right now. So, one of the reasons why Monopoly takes so long These to people play. have sad lives, <laughs> if that is a true statement. And I don't think they do, Mary. How dare you? <laughs> If, so the reason that people think Monopoly takes so long to play is they keep injecting cash into the game. And if you do that, if you put it in like free parking or wherever, it's going to take longer to bankrupt people. So if you actually read the rules, you're supposed to pay the bank a lot of that money. So there That's crazy. So you're saying there could be a world where you just keep pumping money into an economy <laughs> and just pretending <laughs> like everything's going to be fine. I just can't even wrap my mind around that. Mary Pallon, ladies and gentlemen, the book is a monopolist. Okay, speaking of board games, we've got this Monopoly game going. Great guns back there at the, yeah. the rear of the stage. It's our writing staff. Against a nine-year-old named Una. How is it? How's it going, everybody? Um, it's, it's, it's fast and furious. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm the banker, and that's just a position where you're just going to lose. And I'm using that as my excuse because I'm getting killed. I'm, I'm getting in a buy-early-buy-often kind of mode right now. But I liked it, like, five minutes into the game, we all kind of looked at each other and went, can you collect money when you're in jail? And we all looked at each other, and then we had to go to her for the, act the actual rule. And what because the she's read the rule. That rules. was probably embarrassing for them. <laughs> Una. It was a little you, bit, yeah. You can't know how much embarrassing stuff happens on this stage each week for all of us. Uh, did you know the rule on that? Yeah, actually, I had read the rules earlier with my dad. Well, that was mm -hmm. good. More preparation good you. than any of the staff did. How are, you, how are you doing, Una? Do you feel like you're winning so far? I, it's... I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. What it's properties just, do you have? Uh, you, just bought, you just bought electric, right? Yeah. You got yeah. both utilities. Yeah. yeah. That's good. It's Andrew bought solar, yeah. which is not even a possibility. In Portland, it is. Yeah. It's like, yeah, Con conducting her own version of Chinatown back there. It's not going In well. In our defense, none of our dads are here. <laughs> yeah. So, All right. Just well, saying. you can probably text him back in Minnesota, Sean. Yeah, I could. All right, you guys, get back to it then. All right. Sounds like you. Una's in the lead, or at least is the only one who knows the rules, which is something. All right, speaking 
of children, like most children, our next guest, had recorded his first single and appeared on Ed Sullivan and The Tonight Show before he was six. Now he's one of the most lauded blues and R&B musicians in the country, playing both guitar and keyboards with equal badassitude. His latest record, a tribute to his father, is The Son of Blues Man. Please welcome Lucky Peterson to Livewire. Make a fool out of me. 
Lucky Peterson, ladies and gentlemen, right here on Livewire. That was probably the coolest soundtrack for a Monopoly game that has ever happened. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, whose milk is free of RBST because while recombinant bovine somatropin sounds delicious, strangely may not be that great for you. Whole Foods Market, values matter. More information can be found at wholefoodsmarket.com. With a series of unfortunate events, Daniel Handler's narrator, Lemony Snicket, was whimsical enough for kids, but dark enough for jaded adults to relate to. But don't get it twisted. His new book, We Are Pirates, is not the one you want to read to your young kids before bed, unless you want them to learn about what Neil Gaiman called a nightmarish mating experiment between Joseph Heller and Captain Jack Sparrow. Although they do have to learn about that stuff sometimes. So I don't know, that's your call. Anyway, please welcome Daniel Handler to Live Wire. I feel, I feel compelled to tell uh, everybody here that it is your actual birthday today. It's true, it is my actual birthday. And we brought Thank these you very much. people. Yeah. Drinks on the house. I mean, you know. After your first yeah, eight. If, if you guys would like to buy some drinks, they're totally. Yeah, we've got them on top of the house. That's right. You've got to climb up and get them. Um, We're keeping them cold. This uh, new book of yours, We Are Pirates, it really touches on a lot of stuff. Uh, dementia, radio yes. production, shoplifting. Yes. The amorphous rage of 14-year-old girls. How much of this is drawn from actual experience in your life? Um, well, the, uh, my sister, to whom the book is dedicated, uh, was 14 when I was 17, and I'd never seen anyone angrier than my <laughs> sister was at that age. She speaks of it nostalgically. <laughs> she says, boy, was I angry. And w for you at that age, was it you, were you just sort of like, what's the problem here? Um, I was in awe. I think I'd never seen that kind of pure anger in, in a woman before and I found it uh, terrifying and exhilarating. Do you feel like, and I'm asking you, I guess, to pass judgment on your sister, but do you feel I'm it was... I'm totally comfortable doing that. <laughs> it's your birthday. Yeah. Treat yourself. She just moved to Perth, Australia, so the chances of her yeah. hearing this right now at this moment nope. seems slim. She, she heard it yesterday. That's how the time zones work. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Do you feel like that... that that teenage rage that she and so many others feel, in, in her case, I can't ask you to speak for other people, do you feel it was justified or was it just the age and part of the development process? I think that kind of anger in young people is labored, uh, labeled as if it, it were a medical condition. You know, it's labeled as adolescent anger, but I often think it's a completely rational response to the set of choices we often put in front of adolescents, and particularly girls, I think at that age, are told simultaneously that they can do everything and that they can do nothing. And I think, yeah, I hope Don't you're cheering. Away. I hope you're cheering that that's a terrible situation which we must yeah. remedy. I hope those weren't patriarchy fans out there. Right. Woo! <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of pirate literature in the book. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you were into as a kid, or did you have to research this as an adult to write the book? I really had to research as an adult. The only thing I knew about piracy as a kid is that when I was in um, high school, I'm a high school graduate, Thank you. 
Thank you very much. Not to brag. Um, we had to take a uh, career test. And the first part of the test was a list of many, many careers, and you check off which ones you were interested in. The second was a psychological test, and they told you what you ought to be interested in. And the third part was that same list again. And at that third part, I was very disenchanted and feeling disenfranchised from the world. And so as many uh, disenchanted, disenfranchised people before me, I agitated, and I got everyone in my high school to check other, or everyone in my homeroom, rather, to check other, and then in the blank next to other to write pirate. Um, and that was the beginning of thinking of piracy as an alluring escape to the uh, over-surveillance and, uh, you know, the two-by-four situation in which we all find ourselves. Some of those students later kidnapped Tom Hanks. Yeah, that's right. There's a, uh, there's a line in the book, Daniel Handler's new book, We Are Pirates, that really uh, struck me. And the quote is, we steal the happiness of others in order to be happy ourselves. And when it's stolen from us, we voyage desperately to steal it back. We are pirates. Is that really the only way to have happiness, you think? I think that in the privileged world in which we are living, and which I think I would assume certainly everyone in the theater and most people in the radio audience are living, that you cannot examine the lives that we have without thinking without knowing that they rest on the unhappiness of others. But, I mean, are you talking about more globally or more, like, interpersonally? You know, you're well, married. Both. Can you have joy that doesn't involve stealing the joy from your wife? Sure, but she and I might work together to steal it from others. <laughs> Particularly on weekends. <laughs> no, but in the novel, uh, Gwen, the young 14-year-old girl who decides to team up with the denizens of an old-age home and commit acts of piracy in the San Francisco Bay, uh, her happiness is um, from this escape, and her father spends the novel uh, desperate to get her back. And we learn that the balance needs to go one way or another. So I think certainly between parents and adolescents, I think probably when you're an adolescent, your happiest times are often when your parents are rather unhappiest and vice versa. Well, how do you, how do you move through the world then if you feel like you're you're keenly aware of something that I think most of us know but push to the back of our mind, which is in order for us to all be sitting here, in order for the people to be listening to this show, most likely, you're right. There's a lot of people who are unhappy. It's how this world exists. How do you move through your world with that knowledge at the front of your brain? Well, it's not always at the front of my brain, but it was certainly at the front of my brain in the composition of this novel. I mean, I think it occur I'm sure it occurs to any thinking person from time to time. It's difficult. It's difficult to go through the world. Um, and We Are Pirates is a story, if a comic story, about uh, disenfranchised and desperate people. Piracy is the history of desperation, and people who felt disenfranchised from the world were often lurking at the outskirts of it and trying to do something else. We're talking to Daniel Handler here on Livewire. The book is We Are Pirates. Um, I don't want to give away too much from the plot of the I book. I appreciate that. But, and tell me if this is giving away too much. It does not follow, I think, a traditional sort of morality arc. Is that spoiling anything? Um, I don't know. What is a traditional morality arc? Well, I mean... I was I... raised Jewish, so I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. It's, um, it's just, the book didn't end necessarily the way that I had expected it to end, and I was wondering if you wrote it in a way, uh, if you were trying to make a statement about about morality and about who gets theirs and doesn't get theirs and how things tend to turn out? 
Uh, well, I think any writer who sits at a desk and saying it's time now to start with morality is probably doing it wrong. But um, the, I, I wanted to make an interesting story, and I think that for the, in the first half of the book, there are people who dream of being pirates who would like to live outside of civilization, and then they do that, and they learn outside of civilization it turns out to be uncivilized. And so uh, just as the idea of uh, let's escape and be pirates sounds kind of alluring, it turns out to be a little dangerous and bloodthirsty and maybe as exciting as they wanted, but not as, uh, as joyful. Um, you were the host last year of the National Book Awards, and you got a lot of <laughs> Speaking internet... Speaking of less joyful, yes. <laughs> you got a lot of grief on the internet over your hosting, <clears throat> a lot of it around a joke that you made after a woman named Jacqueline Woodson, who is black, she won an award, and you pointed out the irony, in your opinion, of the fact that she is allergic to watermelon. Well, it wasn't a joke. Uh, it was a um, story. She's a friend of mine. Um, and it was a story about a conversation that we had over dinner uh, in which she turned out to be allergic to some food that I served her. Um, so I was trying to say something about culture and race. It went very, very badly. But it wasn't a joke. It wasn't a joke. Yeah, it was, I was trying to say something that I thought was interesting about her work, and her work uh, tackles race and culture in ways that are outside traditional arcs. So particularly, in, she writes for young people, um, and a lot of books for young people about race are about how a long time ago some people we don't resemble at all did some terrible things, and thank goodness that's over. And her work deals with a much more complicated story that happens to be the one we're in. So I was trying to tell a story about that. Didn't go well. Well, you uh, immediately <clears throat> went on Twitter and you apologized, and the it seemed to be that the the narrative became Daniel Handler shows us how you apologize for a, a gaffe or a misstatement. And I'm wondering, was this the internet outrage machine working efficiently? Which is it identified a thing that was said, and it found that thing to be wanting, and then that thing was corrected, and the person apologized. Or is this the internet outrage machine running amok and not understanding the context of what was said and just getting mad? Well, I mean, I think people were rightfully upset. But then um, I think particularly in public, there's no such thing as a statement that's meant for only certain people. It's a statement that the world can see and the world can react to and the world can judge. And um, sometimes it feels like good news and sometimes it feels like bad news. Sure. Well, let's move on to good times. The... Okay. The tremendously, twist my arm, the tremendously uh, popular series of unfortunate events books, uh, which you're often mistaken uh, for the author. Uh, the news has come out that uh, it's going to be an original series on Netflix now. Is Lemony yeah. Snicket happy about this? I know you're in close contact. Um, I think Mr. Snicket's always concerned when more people are exposed to what has been proven to be a major cause of unhappiness worldwide. So, but, you know, I find it's nice work if you can get it. So we have a different... Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are going to have a little quiz, Daniel Handler, that we oh. would like to see if you could answer. But it's sort of rated PG-14. So could we um, get nine-year-old Una and uh, maybe take her to a soundproof part of the studio? Maybe the green room, get her a juice box. Right. Yeah, go yeah. with the strange man, Una. <clears throat> Off she goes with someone who works in radio. How could that go wrong? Okay, now that we, 
Now that we've removed the young children from the stage, I feel comfortable saying, Daniel Handler, your new book is We Are Pirates, and a big part of being a pirate is having a great pirate name. But as our writers were doing some pirate research this week, they noticed that pirates seem to share a striking similarity in the name department to men in a different, how do you say, more adult profession, which is why, Daniel Handler, we're going to ask you to play swashbuckler or belt unbuckler. Wow. Here's how this is going to work, Daniel Handler. Okay. I'm going to give you two names, and you're going to tell me, or at least take your best guess, at which is a pirate and which is a male adult film star. Oh, okay, great, yeah. Okay. Well, one of these I'm really familiar with. Yep. First pair of names. I work alone at home, by the way. Yeah. We did get the kid out of here, right? So make sure. First set of names. Lexington Steel or Lancelot Blackburn? I'm going to say Lexington Steel is a, is a porn star. You are absolutely right. Thank you very much. Yes. Lancelot Blackburn. Won't my mother be proud to know I got that one right? Yeah. Lancelot Blackburn is an actual, was an actual pirate, uh, as you probably knew, Daniel. Lancelot Blackburn was an English clergyman who many said sailed the seas as a buccaneer throughout the late 1600s. Lexington Steele was the star of Nightstick POV. But also an English clergyman. That's a yep. funny... Yeah. yeah. That's just a weird bit of serendipity. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Next. Oh, Anglicans. Next set of names as we play Swashbuckler or Belt Unbuckler with Daniel Handler. John Nutt or Barrett Long. I'm going to say John Nutt is a pirate. You are uncanny. John Nutt was a pirate who raided the Canadian coastline and was apparently set to be hanged. And raiding the Canadian coastline, not a euphemism. Interesting nope. story. Not for him. Yeah. For the other guy, very much exactly. so. Yeah. <laughs> John Nutt was due to be hanged. He bribed an official uh, to be let go. Uh, Barrett Long is an award-winning actor. He is turned director now, as I'm sure many of you know. He is best known for his work in the 2008 film Fleet Week. Oh. So that's kind of nautical. Yeah. You know. Next set of names in Swashbuckler or Belt Unbuckler. Didrick Pining or Herschel Savage? I'm going to say Didrick Pining is a porn star. Oh. Oh. You are wrong, Daniel Handler. Didrick Pining was the pirate. He was a German privateer who hunted down British oh, merchant ships. Oh, that Didrick Pining. Yeah, 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 Didrick right, Pining. Right, the German guy. Uh, he, he was killed in 1491. Savage, on the other hand, has appeared in over 1,491 adult films. Wow. There we go. Presumably in tribute. Yes, that's to right. To Dietrich Pining. That's right. Uh, here we go. <laughs> I will appear in as many adult films as there are years <laughs> after the birth of Christ when a German privateer died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're acting like that's a weird thing that somebody would do. No, I'm not at all. I'm proud okay. of Herschel. Thank you. They said he wouldn't amount to anything. Yeah. <laughs> all right, one more. <laughs> because our researchers had so much fun this week with this category. Black Bart or Long Dong Silver? Oh, that's an easy one. Everyone knows Long Dong Silver is a uh, porn star. That's right. Yeah. His, uh, his fans include Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Yes. If anybody remembers. Black Bart was the pirate. He captured over 470 vessels in his pirating day. All right, Daniel Handler, congratulations. You have a 
shockingly and disturbingly great awareness of what is a swashbuckler and what is a pants unbuckler. Uh, thank you very much. I bet you say that to all the guys. I sure do. Daniel Handler, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. That was Daniel Handler, his latest book, is We Are Pirates. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, now featuring nonstop flights from Portland to St. Louis, Missouri. Alaska helps you stay connected nonstop. More information available at alaskaair.com. Hey, if you're in the Portland area, do not miss our next show at Revolution Hall. More information at livewireradio.org, which now presents a little segment that we like to call getting to the bottom of it. Sean and Andrew, tell us now, digging in the past, digging hard, getting to the bottom of it, getting to the bottom of it. Two researchers, history boys, searching in the past, gonna make some noise, getting to the bottom. We blew our entire production budget for the year on that song, and it was worth it. As we mentioned, Monopoly was originally inspired by something called the Landlord's Game, which was actually designed as a propaganda tool to teach kids how terrible monopolistic practices were, but it ended up glorifying monopolies by making them the whole goal of the game, which inspired us to do some digging, and our crack research team found a bunch of other little-known facts about board games. Uh, We have Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris here. What did you guys find? Well, Luke, it turns out lots of board games were inspired by other games that had the opposite message. Yeah. For example, did you know that Clue was originally modeled after a game called I'm a Rich Guy and Not at All at Risk of Being Murdered with One of My Own Possessions? Players just moved around their mansions, wondering why the hallways were the same width as the rooms. (laughs) That is weird. Why were the hallways so wide? No one knows. Uh, And who has a conservatory? I mean, what does that even mean? That's actually just, I think, like a greenhouse or a sort of sun parlor. All right, Gatsby, go back to your lakeside house at West Egg or wherever. Yeah, all right. Here's another one, and you don't hear about this much, but the idea for the game Sorry was stolen from a game called That's Exactly What My Intention Was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It was originally designed by uh, Ayn Rand to teach kids that they don't owe anybody anything. Mm -hmm. Settlers of Catan is a ripoff of the lesser-known game, We Have Enough Land Already, Let's Leave This Island Alone. Yeah, pretty boring. Not a lot of action in that game. No, you just sat around and talked about what a mistake it was to back Dukakis. Yeah, didn't sell a lot. Uh, The island's natural habitat stayed pristine, however, and that's the most important thing. So then why did they change it? Because conquering a pre-industrial society and acquiring a great amount of wealth and property is more fun than not conquering a pre-industrial society and acquiring a great amount of wealth and property. Yeah, Luke. Duh. <sighs> sure. Uh, all right. There's a lot of hostility coming from the research team, but uh, do you guys have any others? Battleship was based on a game called Safe Ocean Voyage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Scrabble is very, very similar to a game called This is Actually Fun to Play. They, they switched they it the just... last second. Yeah. Not, not sure why they They turn that. it around. Yeah. Uh, Trivial Pursuit was modeled on the game Stuff Even Dumb People Know. Yep. Candyland began as Broccoliville. 
Chinese checkers used to be called not racist checkers. Mm-hmm. And backgammon is a total ripoff of frontgammon. Of course. And Uno was originally called Dose. I am highly suspicious as to if any of that is true, and I, am, I have to say I'm starting to really question the decision to hire you guys as our research team. Did you hear the theme song? Um, We're yeah. Completely credible. Luke, is this because you know what a conservatory is? Yeah, la-di-da. Because that is classist. Our crack research team, ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Harris and Sean McGrath. Get to the bottom of it with Sean and Andrew. Here we are, the moment we've all been waiting for, let's be honest. We've had amazing music, we've had uh, talented writers, there's been a lot going on this show, but what we really want to know is, did the nine-year-old beat our Livewire writing staff at Monopoly? Uh, they've been playing all game in real time. Now we have Jason Rouse, our announcer, stepping to the stage. We've also got Mary Pallon, the uh, Monopoly expert, author of The Monopolist, and a, a visibly shaking Una... <laughs> who appears to have done okay. Uh, Una, what happened? Uh, so we counted the scores, and I have um, 2,095. Um, what's his name? And who's in, and that is good for what place? Yeah. Are you in last place, Una? She's in first place. She oh. won. She beat us. Whoa. And Followed closely. And I'm really glad. That they will admit that in front of, like, 400 people. Yeah, well, we started with 400. Mary, what happened? Why was she so successful? So I was backstage eating a donut and thinking about my life, and these guys approached me, and they said, we have a problem with the Monopoly game, and it was a rules issue. So apparently they had been playing where you, the belief, the mistaken belief was that you had to land on a property to build a house or a hotel on it. Which isn't the case. Anytime it's your turn and you have a monopoly, you can build. But more critically, somebody approached me and there were accusations of cheating. So I'm not sure where things went off the rails. But Una, but Una empty killed. Your she didn't just win; she killed. I don't have. It was any. Una who made the accusation of cheating. <laughs> also, Una doesn't have any pockets. She just pointed out, so she can't empty them. Una, congratulations, Livewire writing staff. See me in my office Monday morning. As soon as I get an office. Congratulations. That's amazing. All right. That's about it. That was quite an hour, Jason Rouse. What, other than the fact that you are apparently not great at Monopoly, what did you learn? Um, I, you know, it's troubling to sit across from a, a nine-year-old person, and it, it's... I'm not going to verbalize this well, but I played it as a child, and I wonder if my issues with money uh, now come from the fact that that I was trying to be so competitive in this game, and it's it's a terrible thing, uh, I think, for for uh, maybe to be playing this with children. And oh yeah, we forgot to ask Una what her takeaway morally was from the I, game I think Monopoly. it's that I think it's going to be the voodoo donut she's going to take home, really, because she just all she knew was you know buy and buy and buy and. She, I mean, she destroyed us, and I, you know, yeah, I don't know. I'm bad with money, and yeah. it. Uh, you blame it on Monopoly. I blame. I'm gonna blame it on Monopoly. I, I also learned something about money management today. I, like an idiot, have been investing in stocks and saving up to buy a house, and I should have been buying loads of pudding. Absolutely, just Absolutely. massive amounts of pudding. So I'm gonna work on that. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. We've had a great time. That's our show. We'll see y'all next week.
Our thanks to our guests, Daniel Handler, Mary Pallon, and Lucky Peterson. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Ergo Depot. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is our head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom and Dave Jorgensen. Jason Rouse is our associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone, Sean McGrath, and this week guest writer Joanne Schinderly. Graham Nystrom is our technical director, house sound by D. Neil Blake, lighting by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, and listeners like you find beautiful people. For more information about our show or how to become a member of LiveWire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank, and we'll see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the LiveWire podcast feed. And you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are LiveWire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about LiveWire. And thank you.